Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and matters of life and death. Today on the show, medically assisted dying is set to be expanded in the new year. There's a lot to weigh out and balance. And the long-anticipated Indo-Pacific strategy is here. Canada is officially trying to get back on the international stage. Joining me this week, we have a new backbencher, Karen Restool, founder of Bold Realities, creator of Whose Land, and contributor for The Hub. Welcome to the club. Thanks so much, Matea. Next, he calls himself Brampton's finest. We have Jaskaran Sandu, co-founder of Boz News, lawyer and board member for the World Seek Organization. Nice to see you again. It's always a pleasure. And last but not least, we have Candleland's very own, our host of Commons, Archie Mann. Welcome to the dark side. Happy to be here. Let's get into it. Before we get started, I want to warn listeners that this segment talks about suicide and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you'd like to skip over this portion of the discussion, you can find timestamps for the other segments in our show notes. We're also hearing from some experts who are now calling on the government to slow down this expansion. Psychiatrists are trained to deal with people in crisis, but some are now having their own crisis of confidence when it comes to medically assisted dying. Imagine choosing death over homelessness. It is so difficult to get my patients the social support that they need to live well. That is morally distressing. The point is a doctor signed off on killing a guy because he couldn't afford rent? The issue of medical assistance in dying is a deeply personal, extraordinarily difficult choice. Today we're going to talk about a very complex topic that's currently being considered in Parliament, the extension of medical assistance in dying to those with mental illness. The expansion of medical assistance in dying is an issue I've been following closely for a long time, and I think it's one that demands our serious thought and contemplation. When medical assistance in dying was first legalized back in 2016, I was a strong supporter of that expansion, but discussion on the issue has evolved quite a lot since then. In order to understand this current discussion, I think it's important for us to go back in time and understand the legal history of medical assistance in dying in Canada, because there have been many steps in the process to take us to the point in the discussion that we're at now. So... Stick with us. Let's go back in time to how we got here. In 2015, the Supreme Court ruled on Carter versus Canada, which was a case brought by several parties, including patients seeking medical assistance in dying and their families. 
That ruling struck down the provision in the Criminal Code of Canada, which prohibited assisting another person in ending their own life. At that point, the government introduced Bill C-14 in the House of Commons in 2016, which established the initial guidelines for who could access medical assistance in dying. This bill is probably the most important piece of legislation that I will ever be involved in in my life. At that time, medical assistance in dying was only available for patients whose death was reasonably foreseeable and whose suffering was grievous and irremediable. In late 2019, a Quebec judge ruled that the legal requirement for a patient's death to be reasonably foreseeable in order to access medical assistance in dying was unconstitutional, as it would require certain patients to suffer in a way that was unacceptable and violated their charter rights. In 2021, the reasonably foreseeable requirement was removed under Bill C-7. Medical assistance in dying then became available to patients whose deaths were not necessarily foreseeable, such as those suffering from chronic pain. What Bill C-7 did not include originally was medical assistance in dying for people suffering from mental disorders as their only criterion for accessing the service. Because the government said that there were too many outstanding questions about how illnesses such as depression could be safely included and what the future implications of opening medical assistance in dying up to those patients might be. However, the Senate did not agree with the government's hesitancies, and they removed the mental illness exclusion with a sort of sunset clause, saying that Parliament would have two years to study the issue of expanding medical assistance in dying before any patient could access medical assistance in dying on the basis of a mental health condition. It was always the case that mental illness was going to be considered, uh, and, and it was always going to be the case that it was going to be taken seriously. Those two years are soon coming to a close, and our medical assistance in dying law is set to change on March 17, 2023. On that day, people whose only underlying medical condition is mental illness will become eligible for assisted death. But a lot of people are extremely concerned about this change. There's not a consensus in the mental health community on whether this is a good thing, and organizations such as the Center for Addiction to Mental Health have recommended that the government actually wait longer before expanding access to medical assistance in dying. The parliamentary committee that was reviewing this new law was supposed to publish its recommendations back in October, but the report didn't come out at the time it was supposed to. So we'll be getting this report in February, just weeks before medical assistance in dying automatically expands as per the 2021 law. So that's a lot of information. I've been watching this all play out quite closely. I was living in Ottawa at the time that medical assistance in dying was being discussed in Parliament at first in 2016. And my feeling is that back then, the discussions were being handled with a level of care and sensitivity that really reflected the fact that this is a life or death issue. Right now, it feels like we're sort of talking about this sensitive topic quite hastily. Each medical assistance and dying request is so personal, so we're not really here to litigate the legitimacy of any one person accessing medical assistance and dying as a service. But I want us to try and wrap our heads around what it means that so many people are now eligible for this procedure who were not intended as the original recipients of it just six or seven years ago. As I mentioned, the reason that medical assistance in dying is set to expand to include mental illness as a reason for end of life is because the Senate decided that it would be too sort of prohibitive to exclude that. But a number of people, including the association representing the lead psychiatrists at Canada's 17 medical schools, feel that the March date is too rushed, along with people from CAMH that I mentioned before. So, Arshi, why do you think that this is being rushed through? Like, why— are we not content to wait and sort of listen to this medical advice that's recommending we consider this more closely? The sense that I'm getting is that it's just too difficult 
there's been a lot of other issues on the agenda. It's been a very busy few years. And because of the complications around it, because of the sensitivities, and because of the fact that this has become quite an ideological struggle within the medical profession itself, I think the government just doesn't want to touch it. I think they're going to be forced to because there's so many outstanding issues, but I don't know if anybody wants to be the person who is really kind of pushing this through. It's too bad because I don't think we're ready at all. And I think you can see a consensus at least developing within the medical community. Even though people are disagreeing about whether or not this should go through, there seems to be some agreement that like, let's at least give this some time and thought. I worry about this conversation. I think the hesitancy around landing on something concrete at this point in time is acceptable. I think we do have to pause. We are in a crisis and we need to, I think, face that with a great deal of humility, take our time on these critical points and make sure that when we do land on this, we land on it with precision because the risks are very, very high here. This is not something we can trial and error in the real world, right? You know, sometimes I think as policymakers or decision makers, you know, you want to push something ahead because the outcomes aren't bad if we do get it wrong. But in this case, they're incredibly bad. And even one life loss where we regret it after is probably too much. There's just way too much backlash right now from the very experts that deal with this day to day. And there's really just no good faith argument in pushing ahead on this in March. I think we're seeing basically compounding crises in our healthcare system with mental health care being drastically underfunded, with wait lists for anything that's publicly available being super long. We see that specialist care for people that are living with chronic disabilities or chronic illnesses is incredibly difficult to access and also often involves long wait lists. And I think even when we look at patients for whom MAID was originally designed, which are typically people that are at the end of their life. I was listening to uh, coverage in The Star recently where they mentioned that the average age for somebody to access MAID is 76. So it is typically people that are Older. But even for those people, I think that there are real concerns as to whether there are enough like long-term care beds available, as to whether people can access things like home care, right, for people who would like to continue living and would like to do so in their own home. This sort of pause before diving in and expanding this, you know, program and policy that like basically forecloses any sort of other solution being sought out for people who access it, um, it seems hasty to me. It was mentioned that people have been generally speaking, whether they support the expansion of MAID or whether they don't, uh, have wanted to take more time to consider it. The one person that I've heard that has not necessarily shared that view is that David Lametti, who's the Minister for Justice and Attorney General, has said that although it's the government's duty to improve like health and mental health services in some of the ways that I've mentioned, in the meantime, people are still suffering and medical assistance in dying for whether it's mental illness or whether it's for people that are suffering from chronic pain or what have you should still go ahead and that these people uh, shouldn't have to suffer any longer. So what do you all feel about that framing? Because that is something that I felt quite uncomfortable with when I first heard it. I think it's an acknowledgement that the government is unwilling to move forward on the alternatives that would be necessary to make something like providing made to people with mental illnesses morally justifiable. So we would need drastic improvements to our mental health care system. We would need drastic improvements to our housing. And I'm sorry, but this government and a government formed by any of the political parties that we have right now, I don't think would really be willing to do that, be willing to put the time and money into creating those systems. 
And because they're unwilling to do that, because they know that that's not really going to change, then moving forward makes a sort of sense. But regardless, it remains, I think, completely morally unjustifiable, whether or not this moves forward in March or six months from now or a year from now. We know that those systems are not going to be in place, that we know that people are not going to be able to have access to the kind of care that they would need in order to make a decision like this. I think, you know what, David Lametti is just acknowledging the reality. Really, the question that comes to mind is, are we just being lazy? And I don't mean to trivialize the issue that we're discussing here today, because it's very serious. We're talking about end of life. But my question is, are we being lazy with evaluating, as what's been put here, the systems, the policies, the services, the practices that are currently in place, and evaluating, getting very real on whether or not they adequately and do everything that we can to help people with mental illness, you know, at first just contend with the day-to-day, but eventually see themselves on a path to rehabilitation. As an Indigenous person, I think culturally appropriate services are very important. A lot of our programs, services today have been designed 10, 20, 50 years ago, and we did not or do not have the demographic then that we do now. And so these are critical questions that I just don't think have been asked. I don't know that there's any leader who is currently in power, who has asked those questions. But I'd rather lift the hood before I get into a burning car and check out to see if we're doing things right here. There was an exchange at Parliamentary Committee and um, the Global Mail actually flagged it as well for it being kind of considerably telling of where the disconnect is between government and, and practitioners. And it was a doctor that argued that just because a, a system cannot provide care or the, or the necessary care, death should not be provided as the alternative. And that's a big issue here. It's we have a system that is failing folks with mental illnesses where they're not getting the help they need to recover the way they need. And now we're going to treat it in the same way we treat terminal illnesses with uh, no hope at end and, and no cure in end. And it's a disservice, actually, to folks that need help. I was just going to say, you know, obviously, there's the big issues at play around the fact that we don't provide mental health care in this country. But even in the way that the law is currently constructed, there are just so many problems. So it might be worth digging into a few of these details. For one, you only need to get the approval of two physicians in order to move forward. One of them needs to be a specialist. There is no limit to the number of doctors that you can go see to see who's going to say yes. So there's a danger that even if people are not in the right state to be making this kind of decision, that they're just going to shop around until they find somebody who's going to say yes to them. Then you have a 90-day wait period for cases that are deemed irremediable. And that applies also to people with other terminal conditions, but it's going to apply for folks who are seeking MAID because of mental distress. That is just not long enough. You know what I mean? Three months, especially for a mental health care condition, is not, I think, long enough of a time in order to actually see if a condition can improve. Uh, You had people testifying at some of these hearings who were talking about the state that they were in 10 years ago before that they were able to find a right level of treatment that worked. When we're talking about psychiatrists, there's going to be a much broader range of opinions when it comes to diagnosing an individual than it comes to certain kinds of physical maladies, right? And, and that's been well documented. So 
in a lot of these cases, there's just going to be no consensus whether or not this is a condition that should be um, eligible for made. All of those things put together, I think, are creating a, a perfect storm, especially with the increasing number of mental health issues in the country, both because of the pandemic, because of other social issues. If this government moves forward in March, it's, it's going to be a disaster. At the very least, at the very least, they need to wait. They need to reformulate this. They need to do the work. And this government is just not doing the work. It's, it's really disturbing. I agree with some of the framing. I think certain aspects of it, I want to be really careful that we're not going to the sort of worst case slippery slope scenario. Like I think given that for mental health conditions as it stands, it is already so difficult to access one doctor. I think the likelihood that people can shop around and, and find a practitioner, it's not something that would be super immediate. Again, I, I don't want to overstate how bad this is going to be because as it stands right now, I think only 2% of people accessing MAID fall into that kind of expanded category of people whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. So I think it's it's something that we need to take very seriously, clearly. We've heard of a number of cases that have been publicized in media uh, of seeming... <sighs> Acts of malpractice is what I would call it in the administration of medical assistance in dying or in offering it as an option to people who say that they sought medical assistance in dying because they didn't have access to services. Or we've seen cases where veterans who were working with their Veterans Affairs caseworkers were offered made as an option completely unprompted without them inquiring into it when really what they wanted was things like a wheelchair ramp for their home to be able to actually continue living in their home and things of that nature. So how is MAID's expansion going to affect the relationship between service providers and clients who might be candidates for MAID who weren't before. Because I have to imagine that even if we have doctors or caseworkers acting perfectly ethically who are not going to be super forthcoming or suggesting MAID as an option, you know, because they're not supposed to do that, I have to imagine that knowing that MAID is an option that exists and knowing as a practitioner just how limited the other supports you're able to offer might be is going to somehow affect the way that patients or service users are able to interact with the people that are supposed to be giving them care. As a basic legal principle that helps guide policy legislation here in Canada, you know, all policies and efforts are supposed to promote uh, the maintenance of life, for lack of a better legal term. Um, and so that should be the leading question from policymaker to frontline worker is what efforts what recommendations are being given to help promote continued living or life or quality, better quality of life for that particular person. From my perspective, I think what your question brought to mind was the value of relationships and community hasn't really been emphasized in all of this. And again, probably my own bias being who I am coming from a First Nation community is that when a person is engaging with a doctor or someone from the medical community, there should be someone there from that person's family, many people from the community that they belong to, or maybe, um, you know, a community organization, a religious or faith-based faith group or elders. You get what I'm saying here is that that person, however lonely they may feel, certainly has people around them in some way, shape or form. And so I don't know that you could legislate that or regulate that. Maybe you can, maybe we ought to, but to think that there's a panel of two doctors granting made to me is a bit of a, a misstep. 
one thing that's been suggested is that perhaps you don't make MAID available if someone is refusing treatment. That, I think, has a certain logic to it, because if someone at the moment is is very committed to, to ending their own life, refusing treatment becomes a kind of rational option, even if that treatment could change their mind about wanting to end their own life later. By leaving kind of that door open, I think you're opening up the possibility of people, again, not being able to get the kind of treatment that would help. And of course, people have pointed out that this is actually, it goes against people's autonomy in a lot of ways, and that is true. There is a trade-off that we are making here between autonomy and valuing, I guess, a person's, person's life. The notions of autonomy and community are two things that I've been thinking about so much in relation to this discussion. I think my initial feelings about medical insistence in dying when the original discussion was happening were very much rooted in the thought that it is so important to be able to dictate the course of your own life, to be able to have control, perhaps when you're suffering and facing a really difficult situation, to be able to feel like you have some sort of sense of control of your life in those moments. But I think that what's not being recognized here is how little control you have when you don't have real options, when you aren't able to access the care and support that you need, when you're cut off from community and you don't have people around you that are going to support you as you make decisions, what autonomy do you really have in those moments? And I think, unfortunately, there are situations where people can make choices, but are they really free when they're making those choices? I feel like perhaps not always. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Karen, what's your point of order? What I would like to see is for the decision makers, like perhaps the prime minister or the minister responsible for this portfolio, to actually go to the community level, to the service providers who are struggling within the the pocketbook within the resources that they have to provide mental health services to citizens of this country, to see for themselves the challenges that we're all facing and the limitations there that really create the situation that we are here today. But then again, I I don't know that that would necessarily be helpful because it seems like at least the trends that I'm seeing, it would turn into a photo op. That is not a point of order, but it is a very interesting pitch for an episode of Undercover Boss. So thank you for that. Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Arshi, what's your point of order? So right now, the Competition Tribunal, which is basically like Canada's little competition court, is overseeing the case of Rogers Shaw versus the Competition Commission. And what I wanted to note there is a really interesting stance that the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, Francois-Philippe Champagne, has taken on all of this. So even before the tribunal started hearing, Francois-Philippe Champagne held a big press conference and made, made quite a big fuss over the fact that he would never, he is not in his capacity as minister, going to let this 
merger go through unless Shaw sells off freedom to Quebec-based Videotron. And the interesting thing about that is nobody, nobody thought that that was going to go through as it was. But Francois-Philippe Champagne went out, made this big deal of it all as if that he's, you know, really taking a stand in favor of competition. And what I find interesting about that is, one, he's basically thrown his own regulator under the bus, the competition commissioner, who is completely opposing the merger and yet making it seem like he's doing this guy a favor. Now, some people uh, have speculated that perhaps the minister has grander ambitions. The Liberal Party in Quebec is a little bit feckless at the moment. Perhaps having Pierre-Carl Pelodeau owe you a favor, the biggest media baron in Quebec, would be helpful to somebody who wants to make more of a political career out there. I don't know if that's the case. I can't speculate towards the minister's intentions. However, I just wanted to note the way in which he completely threw his own regulator under the bus and how he signaled that this government at least is totally okay to a merger between Rogers and Shaw. That is not a point of order, but I am so glad you brought that up because I had not heard of it. And I just think it's very interesting that apparently the Rogers and Shaw merger is totally fine by Francois-Philippe Champagne as long as Freedom Mobile gets sold to like another oligopolist telecom company, but just one that he likes better. (laughs) Very interesting. Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Jaskarin, what's your point of order? Quebec isn't making it optional Uh, to give an oath to the king for elected officials moving forward. I hope that as someone who believes that Canada should be a republic, something that is mimicked across the country and is the beginning of the end of the monarchy in Canada. All right. That is not a point of order, but it's maybe the closest thing to an actual note about parliamentary procedure we've ever had during this segment. It's not a point of order. It's a call for revolution. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right. We'll see how that one goes. First Quebec, uh, tomorrow the world. Here, on the shores of beautiful British Columbia, it is undeniable Canada is a Pacific country. It is most obvious here, but it's true throughout the country. The Indo-Pacific region is part of Canada's DNA. Our long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy, which we're publishing today, serves to assert that truth, to harness its potential for Canadians now and into the future. On November 27th, Minister of Foreign Affairs Melanie Jolie launched Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. The federal government described the strategy as a comprehensive roadmap to deepen Canada's engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. The strategy lists a ton of action items, and it's tied to a whopping $2.3 billion investment over the next five years. That is some serious money. We're talking about increasing contributions to regional peace and security, strengthening economic growth and resilience, enhancing people-to-people ties, whatever people-to-people ties are, and also supporting development across the region. The strategy says that Canada will seek new opportunities to engage in a dialogue in areas of common interest, including security, the promotion of democracy, pluralism, and human rights with Canada's allies in the region. Essentially, Canada is increasing military and intelligence cooperation in the region to the tune of $493 million. Why? Why all this money and investment? What are we doing? Well, in surprisingly blunt language, the strategy says that the Canadian government's approach is shaped by a realistic and clear-eyed assessment of modern-day China. And the strategy says that in areas of profound disagreement, the Canadian government will challenge China. The Indo-Pacific region is also a region where multiple countries are showing major economic growth. It's the fastest-growing economic region in the world. 
But how much of the strategy is really about China? The strategy seems to reflect the lessons of bruising international clashes that have driven relations between Canada and China to close to no relations. Canada's arresting a top executive with the Chinese telecom company Huawei at the request of the United States. Prosecutors have now formally laid charges against Michael Kovarik and Michael Spavor. And let's not forget the confrontation that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau recently had with Chinese President Xi Jinping. If in there Canada, was sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that was Let's create the conditions first. First of all, not every conversation is always going to be easy, but it's extremely important that we continue to stand up for uh, the things that are important for Canadians. But, and there's always a but on the backbench, some folks are not entirely convinced of this strategy, and there are a lot of gaps that haven't really been filled in. So let's start at the beginning. What has Canada's role been in this region traditionally? I think this is actually quite a recasting of our historical relationship with China, and it's especially surprising coming from Justin Trudeau because it was his father that really helped open up China to the West. You know, Pierre Trudeau very famously made a trip to China, had fairly warm relationships with with Mao Zedong, and, you know, that all kind of helped with the Nixon's turn towards China as well. And the Liberal Party has very often pursued a kind of pro-business engagement with the country. That has generally been, over the last 50 years, how we've seen China, especially when liberals are in power in Ottawa. But now, ever since the debacle uh, over Huawei, and the imprisonment of two Canadians in China as a response to the detainment of Meng Wanzhou. There seems to have been a real shift in this government, and they're approaching China in what I would describe as a much more kind of not quite Cold War mentality, but something approaching that, seeing China as as a threat to the world order. I don't know how helpful that framing is, and I have a lot of critiques of it. But I don't know how helpful that entirely pro-business attitude was either, you know. But it certainly is a major shift in how we're dealing with this. You know, the biggest trading partner in the region is obviously China, and it's not even close when compared to other partners there. However, that relationship is frosty, probably at best. And, you know, there's other Western powers and Western states that are looking to Canada to kind of jump onto the paradigm of the West versus China, uh, or at least more obviously so than has been to date. Uh, Now, that that doesn't mean that uh, Canada doesn't have a, a decent relationship uh, with other states uh, in the region, you know, they've they've done work. Uh, obviously, a lot has been made out on Canada-India relations, but uh, it's an important uh, part of the world. It's a region that, that you can't ignore, and, and that's for sure. So is this whole strategy then really about getting back at China for this recent kind of cooling off in relations, or is there more to it? Like, what else is going on here? The question that comes to mind in all of this is, when I opened up the strategy, are we now favoring Indo-Pacific writ large because it's a smart relationship investment? Or are we doing it because it's going to send a message to China that we're now investing in other relationships within that territory? Because the messaging is leaning towards us just trying to make our ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-partner jealous, uh, to add a bit of comedy here. But the point here on a more serious level is that it seems oddly reactive, as Arshi put it, to China's evolving and growing power. But I suppose that 
this government knows that. It even went so far as to put that right in the strategy. And it describes China as an increasing disruptive global power. And what's frustrating, at least to me, is that China's overreach is not new. Like Russia, they've been developing their strategy for the West for quite some time now. And uh, it appears that this government in particular hasn't been worried about this until now. Is there anything that you had been hoping to see maybe more of in the strategy that you feel is missing that merits further discussion? There's a question of security here that is mentioned within the document, but not necessarily highlighted in the way that I think it ought to be, and more importantly, funded. It's really protecting our Arctic sovereignty. This government in particular is known for not really paying much attention to the security threats along our northern border. I wasn't surprised following the rumblings about China and Russia in the past few years about the renewed interest in the Arctic and what it could bring in terms of resources. It appears that the current government intends to better position ourselves in the Arctic through this quote-unquote strategy that they've laid out here. But I can't help but take note that I think the word Arctic is mentioned like, what, five, six times in the document. But it seems to be a point of anxiety or nervousness for this government that maybe uh, maybe it ought to have been paying attention, putting down the Jonia, the money to build up that security. Fair to say since 2015, we've seen nothing or very little here in terms of investments in a real way. And we know defense and military requires careful planning, a great deal of resources, but more importantly, a runway to develop these tools, the equipment, the people required to secure our borders, to provide a sense of security to particularly uh, who uh, live in the North, but more importantly to all Canadians across the country. It's very interesting what is detailed in this strategy and what is not detailed, right? Because on the one hand, we have the strategy quite explicitly stating that there are certain elements of it that are really centered around challenging China's uh, dominance in the region or responding to things that China does. But then there are other areas of the strategy that are incredibly vague and not that fleshed out. Arshi, are there any red flags that you're seeing with this strategy in terms of things that are not specified or, you know, are there any elements of it that concern you? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I like Jaskaran, you know, I grew up in Canada's sick community. And for us, we can see what this strategy is entirely about. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to targeting Canadian sick. And like, that sounds a little absurd, but let me let me flesh it out a little bit. You know, there's a consensus growing that in order to counter the perceived threat of China, what you have to do is counterbalance. And the way to do that is by pursuing better relations, stronger security partnerships with India, the other, you know, big emerging power in the Indo-Pacific. Now, that makes a lot of sense, I suppose. However, India's priorities when it comes to Canada is about Canada's large and pretty vocal Sikh community. India sees Sikh communities in the diaspora, especially in Canada, as a threat to them because there's this perception that Sikhs here are aggressively pursuing kind of secessionist uh, Sikh state in, in India. And obviously there are a lot of people who are peacefully advocating for that here. And in the past, there were 
even violent actions that were taken towards it. And although we haven't seen anything approaching that in a decade and a half, but the explicit bargain that's being drawn, and you can see that this is quite explicit when the words are coming right out of the mouth of like the Indian High Commissioner, right? Like basically, if you want better relationships with India in order to counter China, what you have to do is crack down on peaceful organizing within the Sikh community. You know, it's it's hard, I think, for someone like me and probably just Garden as well, though I don't want to put words in, in your mouth there, uh, to see this as anything other than a threat to Canada's Sikh and also its Kashmiri communities. So to try and condense all of that content, essentially what's being said is that as Canada retracts somewhat from its relations with China and starts to lean more heavily on India in the Indo-Pacific region, what is going to happen is that India will gain leverage in its relationship with Canada that it will likely want to use to control more diasporic populations living in Canada. So that has impacts on Sikh populations in Canada, but also groups like Kashmiris. And it also has impacts on people who aren't members of those groups, but maybe don't like the notion of foreign interference in our government. While Canada is cleared-eyed on China, uh, using the language uh, that they put into their own press releases and reports, they're incredibly blurried visioned on India. And they are forcing themselves to ignore all the issues with India in order to build up, you know, a consensus on why they, they're going as aggressive as they can on China. And it's uh, it's uh, injustice, not only to realities, but also to uh, what is the quote unquote Indian diaspora community in Canada that we're, we're kind of building this policy on top of. It's mostly, uh, as the largest of at least, is mostly the Sikh community. Or we're almost at a million strong in this country now and make up, uh, at least as a homogenous community, the largest chunk of the diaspora community. And, you know, when you read through the strategy, you know, one of the main points, point number three, is about investing and in connecting to people, right? And, and a large part of that is based upon connecting the diaspora communities of Canada with, uh, with India. You know, a, a lot of... Uh, what you read inside the strategy and kind of the releases they put out, uh, you know, they they obviously take shots at China. They mention foreign interference in particular off the bat. Then when they're talking about China, they talk about the reality that Canada needs to uphold its values even through trade to China. Uh, and they talk about that Canada will never back off from human rights advocacy as it relates to China. When you scroll down to the section on India, they completely ignore all three things, even though all three things are true when it comes to India as well. They're going to use the Indo-Pacific strategy, India is, as a leverage to clamp down on Sikh advocacy. And it's just why you're seeing a lot of pushback from the Sikh community. Why is this something that should concern everyone? Because I, I do think it is, but I think for some listeners, maybe the reason why they should care is not as clear. Foreign interference impacts all of us. That is a shot at Canada's sovereignty, and it's a, it's a shot at the Canadian citizen and residents uh, who have to deal with the blowback on this. And it also matters on where we stand on our values. You know, we like talking about Canada's values and we'll uphold Canada values. It's the entire underpinning of our at least moral argument when it comes to China. Those same arguments apply here. And so if we really care about the values we present worldwide, that means we have to hold those true everywhere. You can't be selective in that. Otherwise, it means nothing. They're not values then. I also want to mention, you know, what greater security engagement with India could actually look like and what the consequences of that could be on the ground. Indian espionage agents are working, spying on Canadians and especially on Canada's Sikh and, and Kashmiri diasporas. 
But, you know, that should be a worry for everybody. You know, another tool that's been used to try to punish dissenters as well as the use of visas, trying to divide families, trying to make sure that, you know, peaceful critics can't even go to India. That's a tool used against academics, against journalists, against other people who speak out. I think if I didn't care about it before, I certainly now understand much better what the stakes are. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll be taking a little bit of a break for the holidays, so we'll see you in the new year. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Karen, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Karen Restul. Jaskaran, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jaskaran Sandhu underscore. And last but not least, Arshi, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Arshiman, or you can listen to me on Commons. We're doing a series on monopolies right now. The 1989 film Ganeshatru, directed by Satyajit Ray, was an adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's 1882 play An Enemy of the People. Ray transposes Ibsen's story about a doctor who discovers contamination in his town's water supply to 20th century India. The film was screened out of competition at Cannes in 1989. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azria and Tristan Capicione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.